Hey, listener, catching you before the intro today. Did you listen to part one? Last week was part one with Emily Elizabeth Anderson. You're going to want to check that out before you listen to today's episode, part two. We almost pick up mid-sentence, so you really want to know what happened last week. It's an impactful story about her time in IBLP. We covered a lot last week. We're going to cover the, a lot more this week. It's going to make more sense if you listen. If you refuse to listen to, to last week, uh, you're still in for a powerful episode, but don't say I didn't warn you. So here is <laughs> here's the intro you're used to. Welcome to Not in a Huff with Jackson Huff, where we interview newsmakers, storytellers, and all-around interesting people. Sit back, relax, uh, unless you're driving, and enjoy the show. Here's Jackson. Hello, hello, hello. I am Jackson Huff. This is Not in a Huff. Thanks so much for joining me. I caught you before the intro this week as well, but this is part two of my interview with Emily Elizabeth Anderson. We learned so much last week about her story with IBLP. I've talked to people in the past that uh, was in IBLP that took part in the documentary Shiny Happy People, Duggar Family Secrets. So, of course, we've got the Duggar name that well, of 16, 17, 18 kids in counting fame that kind of made this a documentary a lot of people watched. But what we learned was there were so many other people, thousands of other people that were kind of taken by this cult and kind of indoctrinated. And uh, we learned about Emily's story last week when it comes to kind of the teachings and what it was doing to her life, both mentally, physically, and, you know, her health. She was experiencing abuse in the home, and the church was basically telling her, hey, write, uh, write thank you letters to your abuser because they're bringing you closer to God. Craziness, and, and that's kind of where we stopped last week. This week, I'm going to kind of pick up with about 30 seconds of what you already heard last week, just kind of as a, a continuation of, uh, of the conversation. We're going to talk this week about exactly what IBLP said to people who were doing the abusing. Not a lot. We're going to talk about what happened when she and, and several other people from IBLP decided to to sue Bill Gothard and what happened there. Uh, Bill Gothard trying to sue them back and, and all, that, all that stuff. We're going to talk about the organization she created since leaving IBLP, Thriving Forward, which helps other women who are in um, abusive situations, definitely when it comes to, to cults and, and religious organizations. Uh, we're going to talk about what life looks like for her now. We're going to talk about her journey out of IBLP. Really, really powerful conversation. Again, check out last week's episode, but uh, we're going to pick up right where we left off. Here is Emily Elizabeth Anderson. Um, I was told to write a list of all the things that I wanted from my father. And I wrote this list that included, I want my father to love me. I want my father to not uh, strike me, to to um, show that he actually cares for me more than his computer. I mean, I wrote this long list and then I gave it to Bill and he said, okay, so the way that you deal with this is you take all these things, which he considered expectations. He's like, you have all these expectations of how you want your father to treat you. You give those expectations to God and then all your pain will go away, which is not how the human brain works. <laughs> But that's how I was told to deal with the active abuse situation going on in my home. 
which just release all your expectations, turn into a robot, don't care anymore, and write thank you letters to your abuser. Uh, that, yeah, that, there's there's really no no words for that. I just wonder, you know, that was the counsel you were being given, which is absolutely crazy and, and barbaric, really. I just wonder, on the other end of things, there, you you talked about how, you know, this family that the father actually went to prison and, you know, the mother was revered for staying with the father. The counsel that uh, the bill gave you, what is the counsel that they would give you know, these, these abusers, was it something that they would even tell these people was, was wrong? Or I just wonder what kind of counsel were given there. I'm, I'm trying to find anything that they ever did that makes any kind of sense. So what kind of counsel do they give them? Well, I think Josh Duggar is a really great example because Mm -hmm. he was sent to an IBLP facility for so-called counseling and that situation was never dealt with properly. Um, For the men that were, committing sexual crimes. Those were almost never reported to authorities because authorities are secular, we were told. The police, the court system, judges, CPS, therapists, those are all secular. We cannot trust them because we can only work with true Christians. And we were told that only people in IBLP were true Christians. And so those crimes were rarely, if ever, reported to proper authorities. And so instead they were dealt with in the system. So a lot of times um, it would be a matter of just telling men that what they were doing was, or I won't say men, any, any kind of abuser, but usually it was, usually it was men in this case. Um, But what, what you're doing is a sin and that we're going to come alongside you and be your accountability partner. So you, you don't sin anymore is essentially what they were told. Um, so it was a system of white knuckling. There was no real therapy. There was, there was no real handling of crimes properly. It was just, you need to stop doing this because it's a sin. And so we're going to put parameters around you to help you white knuckle and stop. Doesn't work. Obviously. Obviously for, for sure. And I, I want you now because I, I, people's mind go a lot of different ways. And I know that, uh, I want to talk about the lawsuit in a minute, but I want you to kind of talk about with Bill Gothard, the, I guess the, the things that you experienced. I, I, I've listened to you in another podcast. I know that, you know, there's a comfort level of, of talking about that. So I believe that some of the things that happened, you're relatively thankful that uh, there were, there were some people left in the office that weren't supposed to be there. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so a lot of Bill's behavior toward me was, uh, within a, a grooming phase. Um, so he would sit down close to me and he would tell me how incredible and amazing I was and handpicked by God to work with him and that God had, you know, it was his desire that we would work together in ministry and so that I needed to stay at headquarters long term. And um, then it pers- it would continue on into touching of hair and shoulders and caressing and touching my thigh and just starting to get um, definitely sexual harassment, definitely wrong. But um, for me, I just felt like he doesn't understand social boundaries. Um, and so there was one evening in particular where he asked me to come up to his office. This was when the headquarters building was empty. It was just us. The rest of the staff had recently left and we had been having this private conversation downstairs. 
and um he was starting to get really handsy with me and then he asked me um you know let's go up to my office and so i described this scene in the documentary where we're just walking through these dark hallways and he has this he, he always had this white knuckle grip on my hands um this was one of his things where he would just constantly obsessively ha- hold hands with his victims um, and if he tried to pull away, he would hold tighter. And so he was holding my hand and leading me up to his office um, on the level above that where we were. And I remember getting very, very, very panicked. Um, and I didn't know why. I just thought something is wrong here. And this was cut out of the documentary, I think for legal reasons. But right as we were approaching his office door, I actually had I'm hesitant to use this word, but it's true. I had a vision where this scene flashed in my mind of me being um, sexually attacked by Bill in a, a very violent way. And that's when I really started to panic that like, I am in trouble. I'm alone. What is about to happen? And then we open the door and we see that there was actually a staff member in his office working on the computer it's actually anna duggar's brother or brother uh brother-in-law anna duggar's brother-in-law and i remember bill being surprised seeing david waller there and kind of taken aback and um bill and i sat down on the couch and he started asking me very probing questions about what i write in my diary and do i have a crush on any boy and uh, what are secrets that I tell God? And and then everything just kind of fizzled out. And I just felt like he had brought me up to the office with a very uh, distinct intent to do something. And then that plan got fizzled out when he saw there was another staff member there. Um, I now know, and you can read in lawsuit allegations, that um, Bill raped women in that office. Um, it was very, very common for him to bring women into his office late at night, sometimes past midnight, and either molest or rape them. Um, so for me, I think my gut was signaling to me that um, something was really wrong in that moment. And that I think that flash of what I had was honestly my body realizing um, it was picking up on what had happened in that office before and what Bill's intentions were for that night. That is my personal belief of what could have happened if there was not a staff member there at the time. Yeah. So at some point you, you know, you were able to, to tell, tell that story. You, you were comfortable enough to, to share it, I think on a, on maybe a, a blog post or, or, or on some website. And if I'm not mistaken, that was, that, that just caused even more, headache and, and heartache because then Bill Gothard started reaching out to you about writing that. Is that right? Yeah. So um, after I left headquarters, about six months later, I came across a website called recoveringgrace.org. And that's a website with several survivors who had started speaking out about their experiences in IBLP and why they thought it was a cult. And um, at the time, I did not realize that I had been sexually abused by Gothard. Um, But I read an article on that website from another victim who was telling their story. And I realized the parallels, like strikingly similar. Bill had a type (laughs) and he did the same thing with each victim. So we all had the same pet names. He did a lot of the same things such as giving us handkerchiefs and 
weird stuff um, that he would repeat with each of his victims. So I was reading that and realizing like, wow, Bill has done all of those things to me too. And um, so I wrote in the comment section what some of the things I didn't talk about the night in the office, but I, I just gave a very general comment of some of the things that Bill had done um, and how he had acted toward me. Again, me still thinking that IBLP was a great organization and not really not realizing that what Bill had done was sexual abuse. And I left this comment on this blog and just two days later, I got a phone call from Bill and he absolutely lit into me for an hour and to the point that I was on my knees sobbing on the phone, begging for his forgiveness because he told me that I was destroying his ministry. And if I didn't recant immediately, the entire ministry would go belly up within a matter of weeks and everybody would lose their jobs and it would all be my fault. It was horrific to live through. And those phone calls lasted for weeks before I finally deleted that comment. Because I, I couldn't just delete it myself. The way Recovering Grace was set up was you had to reach out to a moderator through email, and then that moderator could delete that comment. So I had this back and forth between Bill and Recovering Grace for weeks of them telling me, like, you are being manipulated. Please don't let him do this. And then Bill just attacking me and saying what a terrible person I am, and I'm destroying his life's work. And eventually, I just couldn't handle the phone harassment anymore. And I asked RG to delete the comment and they did with heavy hearts, but they did respect my wishes. Yeah. And then it was after this that you joined the lawsuit, correct? Yes. Um, about three years later is when a lawsuit was formed in between that first instant. And then the lawsuit, um, Bill actually left as president of IVLP. Um, there was this fake investigation that went on. We called it a, sh- a, um, a sham investigation in the lawsuit where IBLP basically did a cover-up where they hired a attorney who had worked with IBLP for years and spoken at their conferences. They were like friends. Bill and this attorney were friends. And they paid this attorney $50,000 to interview a bunch of staff at headquarters and then they buried the report no one's ever seen it we asked for it in the discovery in the lawsuit and they refused to give it up um and all iblp said was we've done this investigation and we have determined that bill is not guilty of any crimes but we are um dismissing him as president of the organization Mm. which is very telling (laughs) if you think about it if he's so innocent didn't do anything wrong why is he being excused as president um yeah, but that's they thought they could get away with that. And then we filed against them and did our absolute best to expose the lies. Um, the lawsuit lasted five years. It did not end until 2020. Um, halfway through, the plaintiffs actually voluntarily withdrew the lawsuit. Um, media always gets this wrong. It was not dismissed. Um the technical turn term is voluntarily non-suited. And it just means that we as plaintiffs filed the lawsuit and then we unfiled it. We took it back um, only because the court system is complicated and you have to have so many ducks in a row to be able to really succeed. And we were running into 
several issues with whether it's statute of limitations or um, certain plaintiffs have dropped out with certain allegations that made our case stronger. And so as plaintiffs dropped out due to emotional distress that made the lawsuit a bit weaker and uh, our attorneys were working on a contingency basis and they were looking at like, what are the chances of actually having good results if we go to trial? And so there was a lot of discussions in there. And basically the choice was made that, you know, this lawsuit is too high of a price emotionally to pay. It was absolute hell to live through. And we're not going to get satisfactory justice at the end just because of the way that our legal system runs. A lot of times you just don't get justice. And so we made that choice to withdraw. But then about a month later, Bill opened the case again. And this is another thing the media gets wrong. He did not sue us. He filed a motion for sanctions. And sanctions are a monetary punishment that a judge will agree to where someone has done something wrong in a lawsuit. So he, uh, you can file sanctions on an attorney for an attorney doing you know, malpractice things or you can file sanctions on plaintiffs. That's what he did, where he basically told the judge that their lawsuit was um, phony and should never have been filed in the first place. I think frivolous is the word he used. Their lawsuit was frivolous. And uh, he was wanting the judge to force us to pay him because of emotional distress that he claimed we caused him by putting him through this lawsuit. Uh, so sanctions took another couple of years to get through and the judge ruled in the women's favor in the plaintiff's favor um, and said, no, they do not owe you any money. Uh, their claims were valid. Their testimony is valid. And he said that we did absolutely nothing wrong in filing our lawsuit. That's I mean, it's a great result. But what was that like at the beginning, given, you know, you guys filed this lawsuit because of all of the emotional Distress, distress that he caused to then get asked to ask for sanctions, not sued, but asked for sanctions based on his emotional distress. Were you, I mean, were you dumbfounded? What, what was that like? I can't imagine that. That's, that's crazy. There's a lot of things I just can't imagine. Ian. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say we were dumbfounded just because we had gotten to know Bill's mode of operation pretty well. And there's not much that would surprise us as far as him. I mean, he was just willing to do the craziest things and we got used to it. So in the middle of filing sanctions um, or working through the sanctions process, the judge kept asking us to settle outside of court and Bill's demands were so crazy at times where he was demanding that we all have a personal meeting with him and like the victims like had to meet with him one-on-one -on -one and <laughs> demanding that we be placed under a gag order forever and that we all publicly recant our allegations. So it's like things that I would say most individuals wouldn't have the guts to do, he would do because he had absolutely no limits. So we got really used to that fact after a while and just didn't get surprised anymore at the crazy. Yeah. So what, what was the process of, of, I guess, removing yourself from, 
from this world. You you talked about if if my timelines are are, are lining up. Even in the beginning of the lawsuit, you were still kind of believing some of the teaching. I think you mentioned that earlier. So, I mean, just to, to put it bluntly, but in a, in a very nice way, if all this stuff could happen and you still believed it, what could have possibly happened that you, you finally realized that this is a little bit, a little bit uh, out of the norm? Therapy. <laughs> well, that's a, that's a beautiful thing, isn't it? Well, I joined the lawsuit the end of November 2015, and I scheduled my very first appointment with, it was actually a counselor, which I don't really recommend. Family counselors, I recommend doing professional therapy, but it was a good place for me to start. And then I saw my first, I had my first appointment with professional counselor at, on December 15th, 2015. And that day is now known as Freedom Day mm. for me. And I celebrate Freedom Day every year because it's not like I just immediately stepped away overnight, but that day opened the door for me to eventually leave the ideology where it was the first time that I really told my story to someone else and they validated that what you grew up with is not normal. This is not okay. You are abused. That was the first time that I really had that validation, even more so from those early talks with attorneys, because um, I was explaining everything that I had gone through with my dad and everything. And so um, it took, we worked for over a year together, just trying to process the abuse between me and my dad for the most part, before I was willing to look at the teachings and it was after I had processed a lot of the childhood abuse, then I took a little break and then I came back and I said, all right, I'm ready to consider that IBLP might be a cult. And then it was a lot of self-study. I was, sometimes I would be in my counselor's office three days a week for one to two hours per session. And just, I would walk in with a list of questions and boom, 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 we would just go over each one and like, nope, this is heresy. Nope, this isn't healthy. <laughs> and um, I was reading books on spiritual abuse. I was pouring through the Recovering Grace blog and reading from all the experiences from those survivors. Um, it was like drinking from a fire hydrant. It was so intense for at least a couple of years. I was also a member of a couple of fantastic online Facebook groups for IBLP survivors. And so I was in those groups sometimes every single day um, asking questions and what do you believe about this? And how do you handle this? And what about this? And that beautiful community of a couple thousand people just surrounded me and helped guide me out of this toxic ideology. And I'm still in that process to this day. Now kind of I've started using what I've learned in teaching others. Um, but it was really with the help of professional counselors and therapists and other survivors that really made that difference for me. Yeah, absolutely. And your, your, your therapists in the community deserve a, a lot of credit, but just to put a lot more credit back on, on you, 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 you talked about how, counselors and therapists were secular and you shouldn't shouldn't go to them given that you still had these these teachings how did you decide that you know how do you decide to do that how did you decide to finally accept that freedom day because i mean you deserve a lot of credit for that because that's a 
that's a huge thing. I, I can't imagine that, that came that came easy to finally make that first appointment and do something like that. Right. Um, I would say it was a little bit easier because the first one I went to was not a therapist, but a family counselor and he was a Christian. Mm -hmm. And so that felt a little safer. Um, But honestly, I I just consider it, I I call it reckless. When I can, when I think about my decision to join the lawsuit, it was naive and it was reckless where I had no, I don't know. I, it's hard for me to answer, honestly, how I got into this lawsuit when I didn't think it was a cult. I was just so unbelievably naive. <laughs> I had no idea what I was getting into. And it was kind of a, I'm just going on gut instinct and hold my breath, jump off the cliff, hope I survive it was not really very much of a calculated decision for me. It was just like, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm just going to do it. Even though this is, this feels wrong or I'm being, I'm being told this is wrong, but I feel like I need to do it. And so I'm just going to do it and not think about it. That's what I did. <laughs> I gotcha. Well, I can't promise the rest of your life, all the naive and reckless decisions are going to work out so well for you, but it sounds like I'm, these ones did. And I'm glad that you, that you made that decision. I want to ask you now, what was it like once you, you did go through, you know, those, those things and realize that you were in a cult, you know, that, that, you know, the famous, the famous saying is people don't know they're in a cult. They know they were in a cult. So I just wonder once you had that realization, you're very comfortable with saying it was a cult. Now I've talked to a lot of people in cults, talked to people that were in cults in the seventies have been out of it for 30 years and still they get a little uncomfortable when I say the word cult because they're still not exactly sure. This isn't exactly a cult. He didn't, you know, the person didn't make us literally drink the Kool-Aid. So I'm just not real sure. You're very comfortable with it. So what was that like uh, once you realized that your your childhood what was formed in a cult? I would say I became pretty addicted to learning. Um, I have, especially now that I do this as my career where I work as a domestic violence advocate. I'm constantly learning and reading books on various kinds of abuse and what spiritual abuse looks like within these high control groups. And um, the more I learned, the freer I felt and the more I found peace with my past and how I grew up and I was able to move on from it. I think some individuals that are probably still struggling, they didn't do the hard, hard work of processing because really it took years of therapy with a professional therapist eventually doing, I did um, EMDR therapy, which is a uh, rapid eye movement, desensitization and reprocessing therapy, which is very specific for PTSD, because I was diagnosed with very severe PTSD in the middle of the lawsuit. And so, I mean, I just, I I had to work at it intently for years. For me, trauma recovery is like peeling back layers of an onion, where you go through several layers and you think that you're done. And then something else in life comes up and you realize, oh, no, that's still my trauma coming up. And you just have to continually process layer after layer as you grow, as you become stronger, as new things happen. I've had to process a crap ton of more 
trauma since I married my husband a few years ago because trying to be married to somebody um, and and structure our marriage vastly different than what I was told as a child marriage should look like. Having to do that has brought up more layers of trauma that I've had to process. And so for me, it's just been this constant immersion in learning where I have professional therapists, I have mentors, I have coaches, and I have self-studied a lot of stuff with books and materials and blogs and podcasts where I've just dug in deep. And I am fully committed to, I want to heal as much as possible because I don't want to pass on the toxicity to the next generation. I know I don't have kids yet and I want to have kids. I know I'm not going to be the perfect parent. I know I'm going to fail. I know my trauma is going to come up with my kids, but I want to pass on the least amount of trauma possible <laughs> to my children. And I have this desire for being an advocate, which means giving a voice to survivors who don't yet feel they have the power to use their voice and, and helping them, um, supporting them in using their voice for the first time. And so all of that combined, uh, I think has brought me to where I am today and I'm still doing so much continual growth. You have to be intentional about it. You can't just walk away from a childhood like mine and just try to bury it and say, oh, well, that was in the past and I'm just going to do something different now. You have to process it, which is a painstaking process. It's uncomfortable. It's vulnerable. It's challenging because you have to challenge your belief system. You have to be willing to admit that you are wrong. And then you have to learn the better way. Yeah, I think that's that's important. I think that's that's what's ultimately going to 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 provide the you success and in, in the success that you've already had is just to realize that it's a very long process and it's one that may never completely end. You're never may just check off all the boxes like worked out that, done with that. So I, I think that's a, a huge thing that, that you you realize there's a lot of learning to do. There's a lot of things to work on. And there's a lot of things that you may still come up to be like, ooh, maybe there's a little bit more there. So I, I think that's powerful for, for people to hear for sure. And that's going to get into, I think, you're, you're thriving forward. But before we get to that, just a, a very brief moment. I want to talk about the documentary because that mm-hmm. is, that's, you know, that's how I found you. And maybe it was another naive, reckless decision. I don't know, but what made you decide to, to be part of the documentary and what was your overall experience with that? Yeah. Real quick, before I answer that, I do also want to say that everyone's experience healing from trauma is going to look different. So the way that I've gone about it for me is not going to be the same for everybody else. And nobody has to do what I did either. And you want to make that super clear that everyone's experience is going to be different. And mm-hmm. um, for some individuals, it may take 20 years for the same kind of growth and healing that it may take only two years for another survivor. Um, I just think it's important that you address it, you work on processing it, but that way that you process it is going to look different for every survivor. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. There's no one right way of doing it. Yes. Um, regarding the documentary, yeah, it, it was not reckless. It's not a naive choice. Mm. Um, it was very intentional. I had several phone calls with Olivia Christ, who was uh, one of the main directors. She dreamt up the idea for this documentary, and I had conversations with her long before we ever signed with Amazon. 
and um, was instantly intrigued by her um, idea for the film. And I loved her heart towards survivors. She wanted to do this right. She wanted to do with integrity. She wanted to um, make sure that survivors were being well cared for during the process and I can't speak for any other documentary participant, but for me, it was a very um, healthy process. And um, just, I was taken um, care of as a survivor and I appreciate that. My experience was very good. Um, uh, have, I was filmed uh, twice. I had two different interviews and each one was, I mean, I think I had a combined of like 10 to 12 hours of footage. Um, and so they really gave me the reins, which I appreciated and let me go at my own pace. They never pushed me to talk about anything I didn't want to. Um, it was a great experience for me. I'm glad I did it. Um, I, what I love about shiny happy people is it's not really so much about the participants because that's, that's not the point. It's not just about a handful of survivors telling their story. It's not about us. It's about the audience. It's about the viewers that are seeing this. It's about the countless survivors, not only in IBLP, but in fundamentalist Christianity who have been harmed by these patriarchal beliefs to be able to see that film and to have this validation that what they went through was not normal and that there is healing on the other side and that the things they experienced in fundamentalist Christianity were abusive and they don't line up with the heart of God. I'm still a believer myself and I work with a lot of people that are believers and I work with some that aren't and that's totally okay. But for those that are still believers, I want them to know that what they went through is not the heart of God. It was abusive people using the Bible for their own selfish gain and i think that's what shiny happy people did so well is to give a so much content to try to cover and they did a good job covering what they could there was a lot more they could have covered <laughs> but to cover the amount of teaching that they were able to and just to show very clearly like this was messed up and for the viewer to be able to see that and to have that validation i think that's priceless um that's the most common response that I've heard is, oh my gosh, I'm not alone. I just realized that. And oh my gosh, I realized that I didn't make up those teachings. That's what was actually taught. And somebody else is agreeing that this is really wrong and this is really messed up. Yeah. What I mean, what is your, I guess, relationship now when it comes to just knowing that I think ATI is, is gone, but knowing that IBLP still exist. I know Bill Gothard is, is out, but they still follow most of his teachings. You know, we know when I've talked to people in cults that have tried to, to move on and realize things in process and, and realize their trauma, it was a slightly easier just because, you know, the cult leader has passed away, the cult's gone, or the government shut it down, a lot of different things. But there's still people that are being indoctrinated into this thing, which, I mean, what's your relationship with that? I feel like that's not a, an easy thing to know that there's still people that are probably suffering in the ways that you, you have suffered in, in, in ways that you're still trying to process. Sure. I mean, when it comes to IVLP specifically, I think they've been fatally wounded. I do think the organization will die over time. Uh, they have 
been working at a loss for years now and they have they've shrunk so much they used to have uh, properties all around the world russia new zealand mexico they did a lot of ministry in peru and just all over the place and then multiple um what they were called training centers but they were like staff buildings that they would send kids to to learn and everything and they had training centers um all over the country and they have sold everything but one property down in big sandy texas um that's where they moved headquarters to they are attempting to sell the headquarters property in chicago it's been abandoned um they had a huge kind of like a camp up in the northwoods of michigan and um that is being sold. They were just, li- they listed that just weeks ago. And so um, it's, it's healing, I would say, to realize how impactful they were, especially in the 80s and 90s, and just how far reaching their teachings went to now they've shrunk down to this itty bitty organization, barely hanging on the thread. And the only reason they're still alive is because they've been selling off millions of dollars of property. <laughs> so that's comforting. But, you know, the teachings, as I said before, they go far beyond IBLP. And there's so many denominations that teach a lot of these really egregious things when it comes to patriarchy and authority structure and um, women's rights. And my heart breaks for those that are stuck in that ideology because they don't know better. But I also realize that they're the ones that have to get out of it themselves. They have to free themselves. One of the most common questions that I get is I still have a family member in the cult or I have a family member in this cult-like church. How do I get them out? How do I, how do I tell them the truth so they'll believe it? And the unfortunate answer is there really isn't anything that you can say to them that is going to be a light bulb moment for them until they are willing to expand their mind, to ask questions, and to examine the possibility that what they believe their entire life might be wrong. Hmm. And that's something that every individual has to come to. They have to come to that point on their own. I think the best thing that a family member or friend or loved one could do is to be an example of living in freedom. But there's nothing that you could say to the person still stuck in that system that is going to be that magic bullet that gets them out. They have to make the decision themselves. And that's painful to watch, but it's reality. I mean, that's where I had to come to a point as well. I remember when Recovering Grace deleted that comment. They didn't want to do it. They tried to talk to me. They tried to tell me I was being deceived and manipulated. And I was not ready. And I know they wanted to rescue me, but I had to rescue myself. And as a person of faith, I think God rescued me out of it too. But I had to be willing to ask those questions and to be willing to admit that I was wrong too, that what I believed was wrong. Nobody else could do that for me. Yeah. Yeah. And I I, I don't remember when I was talking or when I was kind of researching people that have, have been in IBLP, I was listening to one interview and Maybe it was maybe it was yours. I may be telling you your own story, but the thing that was just, I guess, kind of really struck me is exactly what you were just saying about how people have to 
find their way themselves. And this particular person that had removed themselves from my BLP, you know, went to a friend and said, <clears throat> I, you know, I think the IBLP because that friend used to be in it as well. I think IBLP was a cult. I, I think I was in a cult. And the friend said, finally, thank God. I've just I've been waiting for almost 10 years just for you to realize that. But I it wasn't my place to try to explain it. It wasn't my place to try to tell you anything else because you weren't ready to receive it. And I thought, yeah. oh my goodness gracious. Net net and I would have ever thought, but I can't imagine as that friend or as that family member having to wait for the person to finally realize it. That has to be just agonizing. It really does. It is. It is. But the only thing that you can really do is to walk in freedom yourself and be an example of that freedom to others. Absolutely. And I, I want you now to talk about uh, about thriving forward. I think that it ties into this just just a little bit for those who are seeking seeking some some freedoms. Yeah. Um I founded Thriving Board in 2020, um, and it started out just as a Facebook blog, basically, and that's mostly where I write. I have a couple of other platforms on other versions of social media that I almost exclusively write on Facebook, which doesn't fit in with my age group, but whatever. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I write every day on there about either what I'm learning or things that I have learned, and I expose a lot of harmful teaching out there. I get, I challenge people to really um, re-examine their own belief system and to grow. I um, provide a platform for survivors to start sharing their own stories. I now also have private Facebook groups. I have one Facebook group that's just for women. Um, and um, there are certainly uh, so many male survivors and I understand that. Um, but I chose um, for just safety reasons of female survivors that want to open up a little bit more. I wanted to create it just a, a female only environment. So I have that group. Um, and it's actually a little subscriber group. Um, and that's a place where people can post as many questions as they want and get community support. Because as I said earlier, one of the keys for me in growing um, and, and getting to freedom was having communal support. Because when you leave a cult, you not only leave a belief system, you leave your community most of the time. And you're left with nothing. A lot of times you're leaving family, you're leaving your church, your family, your community, your belief system. You're starting down at ground zero and having to build everything. And so I wanted to create this safe space as, as safe as possible for survivors to find that community, to receive that empathy, that validation, and just shared communal experience of, yeah, oh, yeah, I went through that, too. And they, these are some of the things that I tried that helped me. Um, so that's what I do with my private support groups. Um, I also teach classes. Um pretty regularly um, on specific subjects. Uh, I've taught classes on tips to help get through uh, triggers. So just, I'm not a licensed therapist, so I have to stay in my lane and I'm not 
stepping into that role of, you know, helping people process their trauma. I always send somebody to uh, a professional therapist to do that. But I do teach on techniques on getting through some of those triggers, such as breathing techniques or, you know, things like that that survivors can do. I talk on other subjects too. Um, And so I just, I'm trying to provide resources basically to help others who are in the same place that I was eight years ago. Uh, I think that's that's really, really important work. And beyond that, I just wonder, what what's life look like now? I, I see behind you, you, you already talked about how you're married. March of, of, of 2020, you must have really decided you need to marry this guy because that it's uh, an interesting time to have gotten married. So talk about uh, talk about life now. Oh, that is a fun story too. We were scheduled. I met my I met my husband on eHarmony of all things. Talk yeah. about stepping out there. Like <laughs> I had never dated anybody, and I decided to join eHarmony and mm. try dating for the first time. That was a train wreck for the first six months. But I met him, and he was halfway across the country. We dated long distance for nine months, and then he moved to my city. And we started planning this wedding right away and we were going to do it in April of 2020. And then my city, like the rest of the country shut down and we had to indefinitely postpone. And so we called uh, our officiant and said, Hey, would you meet us at this park and marry us tomorrow? He was like, Mm -hmm. yeah, sure. So we brought a couple of witnesses and had just a little like impromptu ceremony and we had a formal vow renewal a year later. Um, but yeah, that's getting married and then instantly going into quarantine was uh, interesting. And my husband lost his job as part of COVID too, two weeks after we got married. So mm-hmm. we got married at a very stressful time and really got thrown into a lot of extreme stress that first year. And I love my husband to pieces. He's been a huge part of my healing journey because he's taught me a lot of what the good side looks like and what a loving, cherishing partner looks like. Um, But then we also have to navigate in our relationship so much grief from my trauma, from having severe chronic illness, from dealing with toxic family members that I still have to deal with, from dealing with getting attacked online sometimes for the things that I say and always wondering, is Bill going to sue me again? So our relationship's very interesting where it has really wonderful parts, but then also very sad things that we have to walk through together. Um, but we uh, he's self-employed too. And so we basically just do life together at home we're both very introverted people and I work on trauma recovery all day long and he builds furniture all day long. And then in the evenings we enjoy each other's company and are absolutely loving that. <laughs> I, I love it. And I've taken a, a good chunk of your evening tonight. So I want to just wrap it up on how can people follow along with you? How can people you know, find the groups you talked about and, and any of your connection points that you want to share? Yeah. Um, as I said, I'm mostly on Facebook, so it's just Thriving Forward. Um, my website is thrivingforward.org. That is where you can find more resources. I have a ton of links for books that have helped me. Um, got articles on there. And then there is information to join one of my private support groups. If you are looking for more in-depth 
support. Um, of course, you can always email me or reach out um, on a private message. I try to get to all my messages, but I am not able to have lengthy conversations with everyone. So I do my best to share what I can and then say, look, if you're looking for more in-depth support, join a support group. And that is what that's for. Joe, I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Yes. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. So that was the second half of this interview. So thankful that Emily decided to join me. So thankful she decided to share her story with me and and in turn the listener here, which is you. I appreciate you being here as well. I I just I blown away by her mental fortitude to be able to not only get through the things that she experienced in life, but then to go help others when they've struggled as well. Because, you know, it would be easy to work on yourself and make sure you're in a good place and try your best to just move on and leave the past behind. But she instead works with people daily who are experiencing these things and and probably in turn kind of bringing up some of her old trauma but it's important to her to help others so i just i'm so thankful for for her uh, for her time here and then for the work that she's doing for others so i urge you to check her out on on all social media i will put the links to her instagram and her facebook in um, the show notes, of course, the links to this podcast will be in the show notes as well. Not enough podcast on Instagram. Um, not enough with Jackson Huff on Facebook. JacksonHuff.com. A lot of places to go and check us out. Make sure you don't miss future episodes because I will be interviewing other people um, that have been in in other cults. I've already interviewed one other person from IVLP. A few episodes ago, I interviewed people who were in microcults in the past, people who were in some 70s, 70s cults, uh, different things like that. And uh, I, I think that you'll you'll find a lot, uh, a lot to to uh, to listen to, if just you're wanting to talk about uh, about those type of things. But there's so many other interviews too, from Olympic gold medalists to true crime, all kinds of stuff. So. If this is your first time listening, I hope uh, I hope you'll stick around for future episodes with more people in this in this kind of world, and then also for past episodes that uh, have just expanded from literal Mister Rogers to serial killers. <laughs> so there's been a lot of people. So thank you for being here. If you listen, you like it. Give that five star review on Apple and on Spotify. Appreciate that very much. Leave a written review on Apple. Even more amazing. But uh, if you do nothing else, catch us next week. Take it away, Chris. This has been Not in a Huff with Jackson Huff. Thank you for listening. Be sure to join us next time where we will interview another amazing guest who is sure to make you laugh or make you think. Or, hey, maybe even both. But until then, keep being awesome.